Welcome back, to everybody, to the podcast. I have a great guest on the show today, somebody I've talked to a couple times before offline, but now I was like, let's make it official and get you on the podcast. So we have Dr. Barbara Robles Ramamurthy. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself a bit, and then we'll kind of jump on in. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've been following you on social media and appreciate um, just the humanity that you bring to the conversation <laughs> surrounding mental health. So thank you for having me. I'm an adult child and forensic psychiatrist. Um, been practicing in academic medicine over the past five years and clinically focusing on kids in juvenile detention, as well as doing a lot of advocacy work with um, kids who are going through immigration in some capacity, a lot of uh, yeah. work around asylum seekers. And more recently, I guess over the past year and a half or so, I've been um, entering the world of social entrepreneurship and trying to figure out what that means for a clinician who wants to mix um, the mental health knowledge and education that we receive as clinicians, but also um, put it to use with communities that are often overlooked by the traditional mental health model. Obviously, talking about immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and kids involved with the legal system. So that's um, my startup uh, that's focusing on that a little bit. And then I'm also a mom and have two yeah. little ones, a four-year-old and almost six-year-old. And um, I, I guess the last thing I'll say, just because of my name, uh, people often <laughs> think I'm Indian, but you know I'm Mexican American. I immigrated from Mexico and married um, someone Indian, South Indian, and so I also bring a lot of that, you know, um, awareness and experience, personal experience in that, you know, multicultural, multi-spiritual aspect of family life. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely like you're doing a lot of the great stuff. I know we're both child and adolescent psychiatrists. We're both non-white child and adolescent psychiatrists, which I think is like so, so important because kids don't come in one flavor. Um, and we definitely need to have these different experiences, especially like with the population that you're talking about that are having issues with immigration stuff and asylum stuff and then forensic stuff as well. We definitely see a overrepresentation of non-white kiddos in that group so it's like so so necessary what you're doing so and same to awesome. you <laughs> we try we try <laughs> all right so we always start off i always start off with like a surprise question and okay. i was like let me th i was thinking before this i was like what is gonna be my surprise question then it came to me i was like how much do you know about the background of like Mexicans and Indian or South Asian crossovers and, and love stories and the history that's been there? Oh, wow. Uh, probably not much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I know of a couple of couples who are Mexican, Indian, um, you know, marriages. But from a historical standpoint, please uh, share your expertise <laughs> with me today. 
No, it was, it was kind of funny because um, I remember doing some presentation back in like college. Yeah, I think it was about like the Asian American experience or Asian immigrant experience. And I'm, you know, Punjabi, you know, which is a state in uh, India and Pakistan. My parents from the Pakistan side. And when there was this huge, what's called like the Punjabi diaspora, where everybody like everybody left, right, India and, and Punjab and Pakistan, and a lot of them ended up like on the West Coast, and were doing a lot of uh, work over there, farming work over there, which is very similar to like um, life in Punjab of on the farms and stuff. And we kept, I kept coming across and seeing and hearing, I didn't know like specifics, but there was like this huge like trend of. Punjabis marrying Mexicans, and because of like the very similar cultural uh, ideologies and belief systems and strong families and everything like that, we all like spicy foods, right? So yeah. it's a natural kind of fit. So I, th- I was like, oh, this would be a fun little thing to throw in there. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, um, you know. My husband, Chetan, goes to Mexico and people are like, you could be my primo, compadre. And I go to <laughs> India and everyone's like, she's Mexican. So absolutely, I think, you know, from a humanity standpoint, we look alike and 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 we we eat very similarly and we love, I think, very similarly and support one another. Um, yeah. And so I think that collectivistic approach to living is is very similar in both cultures. So that's definitely... Um, created a lot of unity in our family for sure yeah which is always always good so yes let's let's use that as a transition so family stuff and unities and families and (laughs) one of the things i know when we were you were talking about was like family mental health um we think about, you know, we, we talk so much about like Americans' mental health and workplace mental health and children's mental health. We don't think so much about like family mental health. What what does that mean? Yeah. I love that you're asking this question because I think for me it started at least two years ago that I had started using that term on social media, very explicitly calling myself a family psychiatrist, talking about family mental health. And that was very intentional because that was that is one of the things that I struggle the most as a child psychiatrist. When a child comes to see us in the office, especially for people like me, clinicians like me who are working in environments where, you know, you may have 15 to 20 minute at the most 30 minute appointments, which is a luxury, right? Um, yeah. But perhaps um, only one caregiver is available or perhaps, you know, you just don't have access to a lot of collateral information and you're just really working with the child. Um, I felt that my work was very incomplete with just focusing on what the child was needing without truly being able to offer more to what the family was needing. And, and as you know, right, like kids come in and they're grieving. Grandma died and nobody's talking to them about it. Um, father just, you know, especially the populations that I'm working with, father was just released from prison and that sparked yeah. intense fear in the child. And they want the relationship with the parent. They want to talk about that grief. But the model that we have in place, very few can access the resources to be, to offer that more holistic perspective. And so... 
even within those restrictive models, I try to bring in this perspective to be more family-oriented. And so really always kind of communicating with the families and caregivers as best as we can, right? So at the minimum, yeah. we should be doing this. But you know in clinical practice what that can look like sometimes, right? Um, but it really prompted me to say, well, what, what do I want to do? And how do I want to tackle this need that I have? to step away from just looking at the child individually and looking more holistically at the child. And so um, when I talk about family mental health, it's the interaction of how you as a father, how you're doing is going to impact how you interact with your partner and with your children, how you are accessible to them to have meaningful conversations about their needs and their mental health, how you're going to respond. Like, you know mental health is not just the absence of illness. So your mental health includes your own growth and development and healing journeys, right? So if you're carrying trauma as a father, how are you going to respond to traumatic events that may happen to your kid that are similar to yours, right? Are you going to shut them down or welcome the conversation? So it's that interaction of how we as caregivers one, are available for ourselves and our kids, but also how do we incorporate our family mental health and wellness into our larger community and how we interact with those communities around us? Yeah, it's so important because so many times, you know, again, my my main gig is child adolescent psychiatrist and very similar, kind of mostly doing outpatient work, but then I also do partial hospitalization programs. So we were able to spend two to three weeks with these, with the teenagers. We get you know, we involve the family. And that's really, you know, again, I've I've stayed in that job because I was like, this is a model that works, right? Versus like the inpatient setting where it's like, you know, you're here for like up to a week and then throw some meds at them and get them out. Um, you're like, oh, you're not suicidal anymore. Okay, go home. And then it's like, but what are we sending them to? Right. And even just even purely, purely outpatient stuff, you have again, similar to what you're saying, like one parent is the one who always takes them to the appointments. Like there'll be times where was, you keep hearing about dad, right? We keep hearing about dad. We keep hearing about dad. We never see dad. I never see dad. I've never met dad in my life. And then there'll be sometime like after five years, I may have dad come to appointment. I'm like, oh, who are you? And like, it's nice to meet you for the first time. And understanding, again, the impact of all these things that play a role in how the child, our patient, Right, or one patient, how how they're doing, and how it's so dependent on every everything else that's going on in their well, world. And I love that you're sharing your setting and how you know when we get trained. I think people perhaps may not know, but as child psychiatrists, we get trained in different settings. We're seeing kids in outpatient settings, inpatient settings, residential settings, and we get to see what a family oriented treatment model can look like. Yeah. The problem, as you know, is that we are waiting until severe illness has occurred to require that level of care. And so when I talk about family mental health, from my perspective at this point, I'm talking about prevention, uh, early intervention care, better supporting the outpatient settings so that we can not rely on, on, on higher levels of care later on. But even if we need higher levels of care, which is totally fine, 
you know yeah. what happens when they get discharged, right? And so we need right. to continue that family support from my perspective. I think that's so crucial. You described it too when you're just saying like the 15 minute visits, 20 minute visits is like, and they just become, you know, unfortunately due to kind of outside forces, like how's your medication, any side effects? Okay, good. We'll see you in a month or two months. And you lose the aspect of like what brought us into the field, what made us psychiatrists of being like, well, that's going on in your life, what's happening in your life. And you know, we get these questions all the time from people. And then of course, like on social media, people are like, oh, you just throw medicines. It's like, no, we're we're trying to look for everything else. We want to look for everything else. A lot of it depends on, and then, you know, some of it's like our own kind of struggles with like, how much can we change? You know, like what are the things that we're able to change or what are the supports that we're able to do? So taking that step back and having that approach of being like, let's approach this family way is the way to do it. Talk a little bit about, too, about how your own cultural background, right? Because even for myself, right? So I'm, again, Pakistani, and if I'm non-Spanish speaking or I'm not Black, and, you know, a lot of our trainings were always kind of like in urban settings where those are the prim- primarily the patients that we work with. But you have that, again, the, the benefit in a way almost of coming from the country and being there. So Tell me a little bit about what, how your own cultural identity maybe kind of influenced you and got you into the field. I, um, I found myself on a journey to medicine as a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, let me put it that way. I was not planning to be a doctor when I was in high school, but found myself kind of um, joining these activities that were health related. My first volunteer experience was after sophomore year in high school and I volunteer at a hospice and um there you know there was a child there who was in his teens and had been left there by parents who had been told that you know he was likely not gonna make it and Mm. I saw the the power of community even in that kind of setting and place and so a lot of opportunities led me to receiving a scholarship for medical school. So again, not in the nice, plans, yeah. happened beautifully. <laughs> and I knew I was going to work with kids and then um, loved psychology. So child psychiatry, it was. I think where my culture kind of leads me to become the child psychiatrist that I am is that I'm seeking that connection and I'm seeking that more holistic community engaged engaging way of practicing medicine that again opportunities are lacking for that kind of practice right and so it does take a lot of creativity and perseverance to get there but yeah is that collectivity and that um willingness to involve family members you know you probably hear on those like cultural humility lectures like how like Hispanic patients love to bring the abuelas and the tias into the doctor's appointments and it's in a way I mean it might not be that ridiculous right but in a way we are more collectivistic and and family oriented and so that's definitely playing a role here how do you you know and then one of the things that we know statistically and stuff as well is that again non-white people like ourselves like we don't seek out mental health treatment and there's a stigma you know there's the the stigma that's there about mental health period in general then there's like the stigma 
within again non-white communities about mental health and about stigma then about even going further about being like oh you're going to be a doctor and like oh wait you're going to be a psychiatrist why are you wasting this gift quote unquote right <laughs> did you experience any of that or how was how was that for you um honestly i think i saw it more for my medical um like you know medical school peers um that's stigma yeah. against psychiatry that we probably all uh went through um from my family i i probably saw a bit more worry from my mom about how heavy the work could be. And it is heavy, but I think that um, many of us carry a gift to hold space for difficult stories and and, and life struggles, right? And so we can do it fairly well and manage it very well. But um, yeah, I think um, mostly from my peers, thankfully, my family was not you know we didn't have the knowledge but we had the openness to learn and to hear um, different ways of dealing with things and so when I became a psychiatrist and went into the field um, I remember having conversations actually with my dad when I was in residency and he was really welcoming of the idea of therapy and and why it could be helpful and so I think you know, when we talk about stigma in our communities, I would like like to hear what you what your experience has been as well. But I think a lot of us would say, yes, there is some stigma, but it's it's there for the U.S. American general population as well. And when you engage yeah. people in meaningful conversations about what mental health treatment can look like, they're generally welcoming um, of the idea and open to it. What have you found in your community? <laughs> It's been, you know, I, I come from my mom's a doctor, my sister is a doc, my cousin's a doc, you know, it was something that was kind oh, of wow. like preordained, <laughs> preordained in a way, um, you know, like from day one, you know, parents, you know, immigrant parents mm. being like, you're going to become a doctor kind of deal that's brainwashing that goes on. Um, but, you know, I part of my story is like, you know, I was initially like in dental school and I failed out of there and then was like, what do I do with my life? And went to the Caribbean for medical school and started, you know, got a, got that second chance. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was kind of saying, in retrospect, I, I failed up. Um, not to, you know, disparage any of my dentist colleagues or my old classmates. Like, they did all right, too. Um, but, no, there was, again, similar to what you're saying with the stigma that was there, a lot of it was within the medical field. I remember, like, during my surgery rotation being on a case with the surgeon and you know they're just like being like oh what are you doing what are you going to do with your life i was like i'm going to psychiatry and and again this is an an indian surgeon and he's like why are you wasting your life why are you wasting your education why are you throwing that all away to go into psychiatry you should go into like surgery like me of course um or other kind of statements like that and then even within family members you know my cousin who was a cardiologist would say things like similar kind of comments my uncle who was you know similar kind of comments like what what is this why don't people like what is depression depression mm-hmm. is even really real like things what are people worried about like so again in the dismissiveness about mental health struggles as a whole and and you know again similar with like substance use it's like why don't people just stop mm-hmm. using drugs and like they should be fine so definitely we hear that stigma that's there and then even like within community wise like you know we we have an underrepresentation i think in people mm-hmm. who seek out the services yeah. right like and then 
you know, I'm, I'm part of my background too is like being Muslim and, you know, the whole aspect of substances and things like alcohol mm. and et cetera are like, well, that's haram, that's forbidden mm. in Islam. So nobody drinks. So what are you, how are you serving your community by mm. <laughs> working in alcohol? And I was like, trust me, there's plenty of Muslims who are drinking and have alcohol issues and some along those lines. And I think so. that's why our voices are so important, right? Because you can understand that faith-based belief system and culture and why that might lead somebody to, to, to engage in these substances once they're in the United States, right? Where it's easily right. everywhere, it's accessible. And, um, but also understand the, the, the shame and hiding that may have to happen because um, the yeah. culture is not aware of how this can occur and why it happens. Yeah. What do you think are some of the challenges unique to like Mexican, Latino, Latinx kind of culture uh, with accessing mental health care or healthcare in general? Mm. Well, I'm making um, you think for this one. <laughs> I think, well, I guess I'll make a plug for our my colleagues' efforts, right? <laughs> um, so we know that representation of Latinos in medicine is so low. So physicians in general, you know, we have about 6% Latinos in medicine when we have almost 20% of the population, right, is Latino. And then within our Latino community, Mexican-Americans tend to be the lowest represented in medicine as well. Mm. And so we know representation really, truly matters. I can tell you as a fact, I would not be here if there had not been black and brown women pulling me along the way. I can like reassure you. And I would include even yep. some brown men. Uh, actually, my my <laughs> college um, mentor was a Muslim professor, and he was wonderful and really pulled me up so heavily. And so representation truly matters. But in clinical practice, I think we want to see ourselves. We want to hear ourselves in a way that is, um, you know, liberating and and really takes into account this very intersectional lives that we are now living. Like in the United States, we have possibilities right of being and yeah, so we need yeah. clinicians who can accept all of that not put us into a box but really explore with us everything that can come with it and i i, I heard your episode dr nasir and it's just like it's very similar i think to to right to the um, asian community in some way and so yeah. yeah i would say that representation is absolutely necessary for us to pull more uh, latinas into mental health care when they need it yeah, we, we know that's definitely like one of the hurdles that's there. Again, so many times, and I'm sure you get this message just as much, if not more than I do, of like, oh, I want to work with you versus mm -hmm. like maybe the the white colleague that's there, right? Because it's like, oh, you look like me or you're somebody that I can, who understands the culture, understands the background is like that, that barrier kind of gets lowered when you don't have to explain things, right? As much about things that are you know more culturally unique per se. well and it's real funny if you think about it because on some in some way we have all internalized racism right and so as you probably know mm. some people from our community probably do seek out those uh, white <laughs> clinicians and that is totally cool but for those who are seeking yeah. out those you know those of us who represent their culture more fully um it's really nice to be there when they when they look for us
Yeah, it's necessary too. Absolutely. So going back a bit with like your talk about one of the things you do is like the holistic approaches to treatment. So not just the medicine, right? Um, tell us about that. Like what are some of the things that you do that you bring in there that are not just medicine? Yeah. Well, like I said, clinical practice in traditional models doesn't really lend itself to that, right? And so that's why um, I'm trying to create different ways or trying to bring this knowledge in different um, settings or projects, right? And so um, you probably have seen, you know, the all these like global and national organizations have the pillars of wellness, right? And and we know that those are so <laughs> right. clear and and we all hear these things, but why is it so hard to practice it, right? And mm-hmm. so um, what's your most, like what's your favorite form of physical activity? Like, I mean, I like working out. You like so racing weights. Great. Yeah, I have a garage gym, so I like to, you know, throw some weights around and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, so very traditional U.S., right, American way <laughs> of working out, and that's cool that connected with you. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, my dad had a big impact on my ability to foster that physical activity into my daily life. Um, where would you say yours comes from? A lot of it, I think, comes from, <clears throat> you know, you know, in my in my previous life, I guess, being like an ex three hundred pounder, um, being like a huge, huge guy, and you know, I think my my personal kind of turning point was like in med school again during that surgery rotation, like being the med student on call over the weekend and having to be there for like an, an amputation mm-hmm. of a diabetic foot. And I think at that point, I, it kind of like clicked for me that I was like, oh, this is like a young guy who's getting his foot amputated from diabetes. I was like, this could be me if I like continue down this pathway. And it was, you know, around the time that I'd met, you know, the person who would become my wife. And, you know, she's you know, I'm I'm six four, and she's like you know a five two hundred pounder kind of thing, and I was like, it looks a little funky. So I was like, she was kind of pushing a little bit. So I was like, you know, that that was my kind mm-hmm. of push in there, and then started going to the gym, and was like, oh, this is fantastic. I love this. This is great. I enjoy this, and just kind of went from there. Thank you for sharing that because I, from my yeah. perspective, I do find that most people will make those lifestyles lifestyle changes when something like that happens, like something finally clicks for you. Um, so the reason why, um, I am bringing these like pillars of wellness, which include things like nutrition, physical activity, healthy sleep, healthy relationships, um, access to nature, right? Like these are from my perspective, human rights that we can all kind of think about when it comes to our overall health, not just mental health, although they have a big impact on our mental health. Um, But the idea here is that if your parents, your family fosters an active lifestyle and you don't have to grow up and and eventually say, why am I eating all this stuff? (laughs) Why am I eating this way? Or how come I don't exercise? And, you know, 
it yeah. just kind of is part of who, how you live your life and you don't th have to think twice once you get to adulthood because we know from research right that the earlier we start the better although the, there's really positive research showing that no matter when you start it's really really good for you to start at any point right yeah. doesn't no doesn't matter, matter yeah. the yeah. age or the severity of the situation so um so I practice yoga. I think it's like a beautiful practice that incorporates a lot of the intersectional factors impacting our mental health. So there's physical activity in it. There is breathing and incorporating your breathing into your actions, to your movements. There is the cognitive mm -hmm. attention being present in the moment. So that mindfulness aspect, right? There is the spiritual aspect if you want to pursue it that way, right? Where you are no longer just doing it just because it's going to bulk you up, but you're actually doing it because it's something beautiful that, that your body can do, can accomplish and can take you to a, through a journey, right? So um, I think yoga in general is beautiful. Um, yeah. but it can also incorporate a lot of the wellness practices that people need to foster good mental health in their lives. Yeah. Yoga is, um, I mean, we definitely, that's part of our, our programming over mm. at the PHP. Like there's weekly, there's like a yoga instructor that comes, the kids, you know, the teens get to do it, do that for like an hour or whatever it is. And it's like, you see, there's a difference mm. that definitely comes from participating in it and doing it and um it is it, it does have a lot of those things that you described the mindfulness that's there the physical activity is there so and that's good, new good, stuff good. that yeah. we're seeing in clinical practice when i was in in residency and fellowship i don't think i saw that a lot and so i do you know i just want to make this plug for those of us who are doing um <laughs> this important work when it comes to social justice there is change happening little by little in in small doses right like we're not seeing this drastic systemic change that we want to see but there is that awareness and it trying to incorporate it and pushing it forward little by little so that thank you for sharing that that makes me happy to hear that yeah no it's it's definitely you know again we we see all the criticisms and stuff that's online of like oh again we just throw the medicines and it's like no we Again, we do all these other things that are there, and we always, of course, we incorporate all these things into part of the treatment plan yeah. and how we can help help somebody but, out. But, you know, so. your question was, how do I incorporate into my clinical practice? And I think it's really hard, but I will bring in mindfulness. And if the child, if the kid mm -hmm. is interested, I can incorporate it. It doesn't have to be like a full-blown yoga practice, but it can be a two-minute right. Um, stretch and, and, you know, wellness component to your interaction with them. And a lot of them are very welcoming of that. Yeah. And I think when people say the word mindfulness or meditation, there's like a picture that shows up, you know, they get the, the you know, not to use the words, but like the guided message or the guided imagery of like the person sitting in like their in their room, they're cross-legged and they're like saying ohms and like, oh, that's, you know, mindfulness and meditation and that's yoga. And I don't want to do that because that looks stupid and that doesn't work for me. And, you know, the idea is that like mindfulness can be anything, right? It's so many things as mindfulness. Like, and I, people are like, oh, what, what do you mean when you say that? It's like, when I would make coffee, 
right? If I'm like, and you know, I'm old school and snobby with the coffee, but I like, I'll grind my beans by hand. I have like a hand hand? grinder, grind them out. Then I do like a, you know, I use a pour over so I get the filter and you boil the water and you weigh it out and you can, you pour, you know, there's three different pours that come along for it and you have to wait and, you know, give like a little time in between everything. And it's like, when you go through that process, like, you know, four or five minute process to make a cup of coffee versus just, you know, throw the pot in the machine and push a button, that's mindfulness, right? When you are, again, going to the gym and you're like doing your sets and then you have your break in between your your rest periods, like that's mindfulness, right? So mindfulness shows up in all these different ways that we just don't think about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I like to to tell people there's two ways to think about mindfulness and meditation. There's formal meditation practice, like you're saying, what we usually think about sitting cross-legged and chanting or just sitting peacefully, quietly. But mindfulness is your whole day. It just means being present with whatever is showing up in a non-judgmental manner that, you know, allows you to just move through the motions peacefully, non-judgmentally, without attachment. Um, that's really what it is. It's really simple stuff, but hard to embody and practice. Yeah, and I think once we just kind of like reshape the way, hopefully that like our patients or anybody else or ourselves, right, just kind of look at it and understand that like, oh, wait, this is what it is. And this yeah. is how it can be helpful for us. Like, it can make a, a world of a difference. Cool. So, and if you'll allow me, I would I would add there that yeah. in our era of nonstop social media and distract like tech <laughs> distractions, being a mindful oh, person yeah. is actually going to be a virtue, right? Like you are going to now have superpowers to be a human being and being present yeah. with others, as opposed to being constantly distracted. Which I think we all know what that can look like. So. Yeah. It's gonna be a superpower. Yeah. Yeah. I, there was like I, I joke about it. There's this book that I had bought that I'm still waiting to read, which is like um how to do nothing. Mm. That was the name of the book. And I was like, I keep looking at the cover, I'm like, one day, one day I'll get around. <laughs> it's hard for those of us who, like, who want, who are constantly on the go. We love to do things. But even as you're doing things, that's mindfulness, right? That's what you were saying. Like, it's not mm-hmm. doing nothing. There's, that, there's power in that. But even as you're yeah, doing yeah. things, being mindful of what you're doing. Yeah, makes makes a big, big difference. So, like, even little things, like, I think, you know, eating dinner, or mm-hmm. eating lunch, like, without your phone or not in front of a computer or not at your desk doing work, like just sitting and eating, like that's an Mm -hmm. act of mindfulness. Yeah, absolutely. Having a conversation with your partner (laughs) in a way that truly (laughs) is listening and being present and, and, you know, holding space for each other. We, we all could use some skills like that. Shifting gears a little bit. Um, Talk to us a little bit about your work now. So with like the forensics and then the immigrations and the sound that you're talking about, talk about that a little bit because you're, you're based out in Texas, correct? So you have a little stuff is going on over there, right? There's always stuff going on, unfortunately. Um, And I think 
those of us who are doing this work always wish we could do more, um, always. And so I guess I don't even know where to start. Um, maybe I'll share three ways for anyone interested in working with this community and possibly forensic psychiatry. I can mention three ways that I'm using <clears throat> this expertise. Um, so on one hand, yeah. as, a, as an academician, um, for the past three and a half years, I have been working on forging a relationship between an academic institution and a national organization um, that trains and supports clinicians to use your medical expertise to offer asylum medical evaluations to support asylum seekers in their legal process. And so that uh, process has been finalized after three and a half years. I'm so proud. And so nice. thank you. It's really been a journey. And I'm so I'm so proud. I think that we have a lot of physicians who want to do this work. And so this is just one avenue yeah. that you can get the training, get connected to lawyers and support um, these individuals. The other thing is I do my, you know, forensic private practice. And so I might do some asylum evaluations or other cases on the side. And lastly, um, I would say, you know, I use my clinical expertise to support immigrant and asylum seeking populations in the community. And so um, I will seek partnerships with nonprofit organizations or schools who have a high number of asylum seekers, for example, and offer, you know, spaces or workshops or presentations um, to support those communities. And I, I love all of this work. Nice. So for people who may not be aware, not know, what would be, I guess, what is forensic psychiatry and then kind of like some of the work on a day-to-day, -day, what does that look like for mm. you? So forensic psychiatry in, in, in its most basic form is the interaction of clinical psychiatric practice and knowledge with um, the legal system. And so you are providing evaluations, not care, evaluations, um, to use your clinical expertise as a mental health clinician and explain to the court or lawyers or whatever, you know, mechanism through the legal system, why mental health may be impacting the individual and, yeah. and whatever legal situation they're dealing with. Um, we, you know, bring in psychology and sociology and, and there's forensic psych psychologists as well, right? That they bring their own expertise to the table. It's a really cool field that I um I love as an as somebody who is working in the interaction of different systems. I think it's a really powerful field. Um and your second question was I forgot. Oh what does it look like day to day? <laughs> so um, for me, it's a very small part of my overall work. But if you are going to practice forensic psychiatry, at least 25% of your, of your, you know, 100% work, um, it's going to be a lot of evaluation and report writing, and then a yeah. little bit of, yeah. you know, possibility for court testimony, which is always fun, I think. Yeah. 
There's, I think there's a lot of people who get yes. afraid. But they're, they're like, oh, I don't want to go to court. I don't want to end up on court. I don't want to end up on trial or anything. I was like, it doesn't doesn't always go like that usually yeah most of the time you don't get you don't get asked to go to court but even if you go honestly you do it once or twice and then you get more comfortable being on that in that position and lending your your expertise is not about you it's really about lending your expertise to the case yeah tell us about how the field can be more inclusive advocating for like racial, gender equity, all of Mm. that. How can we, what are some steps that can be done to help out with that? Oh my goodness, so much. (laughs) Where do I start? (laughs) Um, Maybe from what you see. I'll give an example that actually came up this week. Um, I attended a, a training for a mental health intervention. And we were told just to give you an example we were told that you know this is for children who have a mental health condition and ultimately it doesn't really matter what like the family dynamics are like um you know whoever is there to engage with this intervention can go ahead and and i think you know, sometimes we have to do that. We have to get really concrete and really specific. And I get that. But from my perspective, given all the teaching that a lot of us have been trying to do, you can no longer be saying these things. Like you cannot be talking about evidence-based interventions without considering the sociopolitical climate that impacts children and families, right? And so like, you can tell a mom to go and take this skill home, for example, when there's yeah. violence going on in the home and you're not talking about women's rights and, and, and safety, right? Um, I mean, there's just so many layers that, right, like that you can think about. And so number one, I think just being very mindful that as clinicians, especially if you're a researcher and treatment developer (laughs) cannot be ignoring sociopolitical layers and climate surrounding your intervention. And you have to at least acknowledge what has not been studied and considered in the process, right? Um, So I'll stop there because there's a lot I could say. (laughs) I'll stop there. No, there there is a lot because again, we see this a lot with a lot of the research and all the treatments that are there, you know, again are are coming from a certain demographic and a certain point of view of how things should be. And a lot of things, there's again exactly what you're describing is unique circumstances, which are not super unique, but at the same time very, you know, they're unique in certain situations or areas of the world. Um, but they really generalize to a majority of the people that we actually work with yes. clinically, right? Um, versus like the nice suburban type of people that people may be getting research or evidence or whatever for. So cool. Tell us about, so you have a uh, teku, right? Mm-hmm. Am I saying that correctly? Take us. Tell me about that. So, what what is that? Because you run that. You're the CEO. (laughs) 
Well, so I've been on this journey for about a year and a half. So I would say, you know, it, we're, it's still in, in its early stages, baby stages, but um, we are building a virtual platform, currently website-based, that is promoting child and family mental health, trying to accomplish this in a holistic uh, perspective, as well as an intersectional, uh, you know, from an intersectional standpoint. And so what we have right now is an online course and community for parents and caregivers of, you know, kids 18 and under, who want to connect with, you know, other community members, but also receive some support and education surrounding just foundational tools that can foster everyone's wellness. So again, talking about the eight pillars, right, of of wellness, healthy relationships are one of them. And what do we know about healthy relationships? Well, there's there's foundational things, right, that make up healthy relationships. And yes, you can go further for different populations, but the foundational needs are there. So that's what we're trying to do. That's what we have to offer at this time. But we're also building sub-communities. So, so talking about kind of equity, right? So there's something that applies to every yeah. single human being. And then there's layers that impact certain communities differently. And so um, right now we have like a general community. Everyone is welcome. Um, but we're also building, um, you know, sub-communities because of my expertise, starting with the immigrant community, the asylum-seeking community, but also with um, families interacting with the juvenile legal system. How's that been? What's the reception of it been so far? Or how, how do you feel like that's been going? The reception, I think, is great among clinicians and community leaders. Um, we literally mm-hmm. just launched our virtual offerings this past no this month (laughs) and yes it's really new but it's been like a year and a half journey because as you know like these projects take a long time and we have actually been piloting um the programming live and so the live work has been going on but the virtual community that's just been launched over the past month um I think there's very positive reception for what we're offering and definitely a lot of excitement for what's to come specifically for specific communities. Nice. Good, good. No, I think it's, you know, kind of aligning with the future, right, of care and how we want Mm -hmm. to deliver care and then kind of kind of like what you're saying with the family mental health, because this is a way that we can engage people Mm -hmm. early and you know even going like with equity right we're trying to break down barriers or access and as long as we're able to kind of have some kind of community knowledge and community resources that's what you're really looking for right to to make things equitable absolutely it's like opening the door opening the door and letting them in guiding them to the next step if it's needed right but it's that that initial stage that we're lacking in traditional healthcare models. Nice. Okay, good. Well, good luck with everything with that. Hopefully it goes and goes and goes because I think it is invaluable. And I think there's, there's a good kind of model for, for again, for reaching these populations that we're looking for. Yeah, I think 
Thank so. you. I appreciate that. It's a it's a journey, a challenging journey to yeah. say the least. <laughs> but it's also fun and and really um there's a lot of learning that's happening. So I appreciate that. Yeah. You had said before also like you're I mean you're you're pushing and learning kind of getting out there a little bit. What have been some of the challenges that you've found with exploring you know, again ways of bringing your clinical expertise mm -hmm. or your background into other parts of the world or trying to marry those things mm. together? Well, um, I do a little bit of consulting with a super awesome um, mental health policy institute. And they're, they have their hands like all over the place with cool initiatives throughout Texas. Yeah. So that's one way that clinicians can do that. Um, I also do a lot of uh, volunteer, but important work serving in committees, right? And so whether it's an academic committee, whether it's a local city-based uh, city government committee, I think all of these things are really important because we need to have our voices heard as child psychiatrists. We bring a really holistic yeah. and complete in, uh, perspective regarding child and family mental health. And so I think we need to be in yeah. all different spaces. I guess, or I would like to include, um, I'll wake, welcome your perspective too on, you know, I think um, something I try to do a lot as a medical educator is share my perspective as a mother, because, you know, nobody shares what it's like to be a parent <laughs> and a clinician and, and the hardships that can come with that, right? And, and yes, primary and secondary caregivers, and, and there's different perspectives, but I'm wondering what your, what, what would be some pearls you like to share with people <laughs> um that it's hard <laughs> right you know i think that it's not easy um you know i think i'm sure you kind of get asked this question a lot of times and you know i get asked it all the time by when you're working as a child and adolescent psychiatrist and you're telling parents what to do right as or at least that that's how it's interpreted right is that you're mm. telling parents how they should parent their child don't you have kids and what would happen with your kids if this, you know, would you put your kids on medication? And again, that always kind of gets thrown at you of like, well, what would you do in this situation? Or what do you don't want to do? Or are you doing this? And you know, a lot of us are, <laughs> a lot of us are dealing with that, right? A lot of us have our own stuff, you know, and I think, you know, patients will sometimes say things like, oh, well, you seem to be living like this perfect life. And I was like, you don't know that. <laughs> you don't know what's going on in my mm. life, right? You know, purposely, right? You were kind of told in a way to like keep things on our end, but you don't know if I like just came from having my daughter's wisdom teeth pulled or not her wisdom teeth, just like having her teeth pulled at, at like six years old and having her crying in my arms and her blood is still like on my pants. And now I'm showing up in clinic an hour later and like I have to like work with your kids. Like, you don't know that part, right? That's mm. something that happened to me, like in you know during the school year, um, or you don't know if my kiddo's sick. You know when my when my I can say like when my was it when she my my first daughter when she was like two months old was in the hospitalized for like meningitis mm. and was in the hospital for two weeks getting you know IV antibiotics and like you know I still had to, I was in residency at the time fellowship I still had to like go into the hospital every day and like do all this stuff over there and it's like that's 
do we still do this? You know, we're parents, a lot of us, a fair amount of us are parents as well. And, you know, we're not trying to tell you how to parent your kids, right? We're offering suggestions mm. and some of that aspect. Wow. That's, yeah. I, um, I, you know, I think there's two, two populations we're talking about here, I guess. One is the patients. And I would say, you yeah. know, I personally feel that this is my personal perspective. Okay. I personally feel that I probably yeah. did some harm. Um, just like judgment, right? You have you really have no idea. You truly have no idea. And yeah. especially now that I have um kind of developed this more family holistic perspective, I I, I do think that yeah. we have to be just very mindful, right? And I think disclosing, disclose this is one of the meaningful disclosures that I do have four kids, including an eight month old, right? Like <laughs> I hear you. Things are yeah. really challenging. Like this is a hard decision to make, right? Um, and then yeah. also I, I would like for trainees to see you having those conversations and saying, you know, like this is tough to be a parent, like what you're going through, like this is a really hard situation. Um and and you yeah. know your family's needs best, right? And so to 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 also instill in 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 trainees as well as share with them. Um, my kid is in yeah. the hospital and I do have to be in clinical, you know, clinical services right now. And what does that mean for them? Because we're talking a lot about changing the system, the culture, right? So that's, that's an interesting conversation oh, yeah. always worth having. Even like, I'm talking about like almost from talking to other parents' point of view, right? For the parents of our patients and sometimes like even it's difficult where we're working with like the peers of some of times like our own kids or kids who go to mm-hmm. our own our our kids' schools and that can be hard and there's that aspect where it's like oh damn like is this you know can i see my kids in this mm-hmm. position um so it's it is tough there's definitely that aspect i think i know you said about harm like i think also for people who are in the field you know, I think a lot of, it may just be me, but a lot of psychiatrists too, they're talking all day or they're listening to people mm. talk all day, right? And they want to come home, when they come home, they want to just come home to quiet <laughs> um, or want things to just be quiet at home, right? Um, and again, it may just be me. You can <laughs> feel free to tell me otherwise. But like, you know, sometimes like I feel like I shortchange my kids' mm. experience because I'm like, I just want things to be quiet. I just want things to be quiet. And I was like, and I have to remember, I was like, kids are kids, right? I'm telling parents all day, kids will be kids and they're going to be loud and they're going to be annoying and they're going to be whatever. But I was like, then my expectations for my own kids become Well, and that's right? where you take your, that personal experience to truly understand how hard it is to do what we're preaching, yeah. right? And so I think that, like, yeah. that's what I'm doing with Deku. Like, I'm going in there as a, yes, I'm a yeah. clinician. Yes, I have this knowledge, but I'm a mom. And I know how hard it is yeah. to transition from work to, to, to kids, to be a wife, to be, right? Like, it's a lot. And so I'm going in there more as a human being. And that's what I need, too, to be more of a human yeah. being. Yeah, I think we could all... We could all benefit from that, right? And and turning off like the go mm-hmm. go go engine and 
culture that's there that so mindfulness much. that so. you know we have to bring home and be like you know <laughs> i might just step to the back step out to the backyard while you guys have a lot of fun <laughs> that's okay too no totally totally so it's yeah do as i do as i say not as i do right so <laughs> cool all right well i'll we'll wrap up a little bit but last couple questions i was asked people is like what is your versions of self-care what do you do for yourself for self-care we're talking yeah. about it a bit so so much i would say so much i do so much honestly um I absolutely need my exercise and my physical activity. And I have like a few that I kind of rotate just based on my needs. So I'm like, sometimes I'll go on a bike ride or, or running or yoga or whatever it is. Um, and I, I mean, I, I have to take care of my, of my health. I, I can't, I have no option. Yeah. I have no choice. I will get depressed and I will get very anxious. So um, ex I would say exercise and mindfulness are my top two that I employ on a regular basis. Nice. Good. And last question is, favorite pair of sneakers? <laughs> I forgot to prepare for this one because I'm so lame and I don't have sneakers. Okay, don't judge me. Don't judge oh. me. But I am not like... I am not a fashionable person, so my sister, I tell everybody my sister goes shopping for me, so like, I have no ah, idea, okay. but I love yours, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that works. Cool, cool, cool. How can people follow along with your journey and help out with what you're doing too? Yes, I some ways Definitely to connect love connecting with people on social media. I am on Twitter, Instagram at uh, Barbara Robles MD, and I am on LinkedIn. And you can definitely check out our website, www.jointeku.com. Please connect if you are a nonprofit serving, you know, LGBTQ youth, immigrants, juvenile legal system impacted families. Reach out to me. I would love to hear from you. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, and we will definitely support and help out every way, which thank way you. we can. So looking forward to what you thank guys you are doing. Thank you for having me. It was great chatting with you.